Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So I hear you're doing something new that our listeners might be interested in, in particular something with a, a new kind of economic profit-oriented attitude to it, so a new way of working with software, or new to you and me. Uh, so what, what is that, and uh, how, how could we learn from it? Well, uh, I've, I've moved into a slightly different role, and, um, and so I'm, and I'm looking at this engineering organization, and one of the uh, ideas we have is around the idea of software being done and that we can uh, create software, it, it solves customer needs, and then we, we can have it be finished and move the development team into working on new software. What a radical idea. It would be like building a machine <laughs> and putting it in the factory and then expecting it to produce new widgets for 20 years. That, that, that's right. Now, I'm, I'm sure for some of our audience, they'll say, that, what, that's normal. That's, 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 you know, like legacy systems are like that. But I think there's an element to which it feels unnatural to a lot of the software developers I talk to because they're used to uh, working on their product teams and, you know, they work on their product teams. And if issues come up they in maintenance, then they just deal with it in the course of their business. I think it's something different, though, if you have this mental model of, well, once once the software is done, it should be high quality. It should work. The system should continue to operate. And any variation from that, if we end up spending unplanned time on this whole software, well, then that's inhibiting our the, the profitability of that software. It's less profitable than it was, and we have less uh, fewer, less resources to go and put onto the new innovations that we, we want to be making new software. So it's just a slight tweak. I'd, I'd watch out for the, the negative... At, um connotations of some of the language. So the natural thing to say might be, well, this is legacy software. This is old software. This is um, the the previous system. This is version one, that sort of thing. And I, yep. I think the difference for me, as you were describing to this this to me, was we were talking about it before, is, is this isn't software that you think of that way. You don't think, gosh, this software is what we want to replace. We're sunsetting it. It's going to be gone soon. You're thinking, hey, this we can keep turning the crank on this for a long time. We just don't want to spend a lot of time improving it or changing it. Is that right? That, that's right, exactly. And I think one of the big differences come in, in the idea of how you think in terms of your, your marketplace and your clients. You're sort of, I think a lot of people are used to, as again, sort of a legacy system. It's like, oh yeah, that's that old system with old clients on it. And eventually they'll go away and that thing will die. But we're like, no, 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 this is could be something we just wrote, but it's done. And we're selling it. And if there's new clients in the market who don't have it yet, well, they should buy it. We should be signing new people up. And that idea of signing new people up for a system that's not under active development, I think that's where, in, in, at least in my background, with is often with startup companies, that kind of breaks people's minds. You know, that the idea of that you'd have people signing up for a, to newly use some bit of software and becoming new clients when there's no development team actively working on it just doesn't seem to make sense to them. And the the other difference in another part of the world that probably many of our listeners are in is building software that's bespoke for a large organization or that solves a problem for uh, a, a market of some variety. And what you wind up doing in that situation is changing it to adapt to changing circumstances. So if you're um, providing a, a service to customers, they'll, uh, customers' needs change and the um, economy changes and um, there are new things that the business decides to do that have nothing to do with computers, but the software has to keep up. And it sounds like to me what you're deciding is this is a stable area. This is an area that's not kind of bubbling and roiling and, and altering all the time. 
this is an area that's pretty much going to stay the same. We're not expecting something new to happen. So we're just going to keep turning the crank on this piece of software. Is that right? Exactly right. And so, you know, over the course of, a you know, many years, things might change and we might come back to it. But at the moment, and I think what's, what's, we, we think it's done. And, and that whole idea of like, the, looking to build a system and have that system be complete and finished, and just able to go and operate without someone looking after it all the time, that is a desirable end state. And that's what had me thinking about this, about this kind of economics of software development from the view not of what we usually talk about, which is experimentation. I think a lot of times we've talked about running different experiments and elephant carpaccio and, and having little slices of delivery every day and the economics of learning. But here we're not we're not looking to learn. We're looking to continue to run. But I would claim there's there's areas where you do want to learn. You want to learn about aspects of the software and its operation that could help you make a greater profit from it. So you, you don't have to turn the crank so hard. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's and that's where we started our, our conversation before this, um, which generated the topic, which is to say, look, I want to understand in these systems, um, how often do we have incidents? How often are there things where we get pulled in to prop something up, something breaks? And, and how we would measure then how good we've been at creating a system that can run unattended and find areas of improvement? You know, how can we learn, uh, and not about the market, but learn about our own system in, in ways to increase its stability and therefore its, uh, its profitability, its efficiency? And your thinking might be quite different than in a system that is constantly evolving and in which you have a development team on staff. In in those situations, often you're trying to reduce the, well, you're, you're trying to both learn a lot of things and reduce the large variation as, as much as you can. Whereas here, I think you could tolerate um, quite a lot of variation if it was predictable. So for instance, if the system runs out of memory once a day and um, <laughs> there's a window where it's not being used, well, you could turn the crank more easily by just restarting it once a day, right? And you'd be okay with that, which you wouldn't in a system that was evolving because that might get worse. Yeah, that, that's right. Exactly. And that's a really good point that we would hope that the because there's little change happening in these systems, that they would be very stable and we'd be able to characterize their behavior very well. And as you say, become very predictable and built in, you know, remediations that allow things to operate smoothly. And that'd be that you're right, that is different than a system that's actively evolving, where it'd be very difficult to characterize over a long period of time because we're not going to have a, a stable uh, system in terms of its operating characteristics. I wouldn't expect the you know memory utilization profile or disk utilization profile or network IO or whatever to be that consistent if we're constantly adding new features, driving new behavior from, from clients compared to a system that's, as we said, relatively stable and, and should be pretty consistent over time. So the, the thing that comes into my mind when, when you describe this is an artifact called a control chart which has, for those who, who don't have Google to hand um, to, to, to visualize, imagine two horizontal lines above and below an x-axis, and you plot points um, with time on the x-axis, um, so different events, and a, a point might be above or below the x-axis, depending on how far out of bounds it is, how, how unusual is it. Right on the x-axis is normal operation. And you might be perfectly fine with, in my example, running out of memory once a day has a relatively low impact because all you have to do is turn it off and on again. And the frequency isn't too high. So there aren't too many dots. You just, and in fact, you can plan for them. There's a dot once a day. And so before that, you restart the system. 
that kind of control thinking that you use in a factory might be helpful in uh, analyzing and uh, mitigating the any variation that you find in the completed system that you're working with. Yeah, that's right. It, it was interesting when you brought that up because I had been thinking just in terms of, of um, more common measures. I was thinking of the number of incidents. In particular, I was thinking of mean time to recovery, MTTR. Um, and what, it, what occurred to me is the difference of this control chart approach is if I were measuring each incident uh, uh, on the chart, I would plot it. And then the, the uh, y-axis became what was the time to recovery. Well, two things would happen. And one is I would get the MTTR out of it, but I would also then find kind of what the normal range is, that sort of standard vari uh, distribution. And, and I might say like, oh, a variation within this range is normal. But then I could also spot outliers and, and have, have deeper investigations into questions like what happens if something's really unusual in terms of its impact? What happened? Those are my places for, for further investigation. So that, that was the uh, uh, interesting idea that came out from you and I discussing control charts. Yeah. So uh, that's exactly the sort of thing you do in an industrial, in a, in a machine environment, in a factory, because you're looking for the machines that um, need some tuning or need some oil or need to be replaced because they're creating variation in the, the speed of the uh, items on the assembly line or the um, time to recovery of normal operation of the factory. So you plot them on this kind of control chart and say, wait, these dots are outside the bounds. What do they have in common? Yeah, the interesting thing is, and if I compare this to one of the points um, made by uh, the, the person who wrote Principles of uh, Product Development Flow. Oh, yeah, Reinertsen. Reinertsen, yeah. Reinertsen makes the point that um, the economics of software development are different than the economics of manufacturing. And in particular, he points out that in um, software development, <clears throat> variation is a source of value. It's where innovation comes from. Innovation in a factory is waste. And the, what's interesting here on this twist, what it came up for me is the difference when we're no longer trying to innovate with the software, when we're trying to merely operate it, now we're much more in that kind of uh, variation as a waste uh, uh, situation as in traditional manufacturing as opposed to uh, um, in, in uh, new software development where variation is a source of innovation. Absolutely. So if you uh, if I told you, hey, you'll have uh, you won't have to restart the system once a day. It'll only be once a month. But occasionally the whole thing will be down and you'll have to get the whole team in to fix it. I think you'd be much more sad in the second situation in your current economics with with the economics that you presently have. Whereas previously in a more innovative environment, you might say, well, I'll take a big variation. I'll take a big outage and a big investment if it means that I can learn more and evolve my system. But at the moment, you're not thinking about that in your current role. That, that's right. Great. Okay. Well, if uh, listeners are intrigued by that, if they're in this situation, if they think they might be, if control charts are an interesting idea to you, or if you completely disagree, you think, man, I, I want more variation, bring it on. I I'd like to see more changes. Uh, any of those, we always like to hear from our listeners about. Disagreement, agreement, puzzlement are all good reactions. And you can express any of those by getting in touch with us via agileconversations.com. You'll find email, Twitter, um, carrier pigeon, my home address, you know, you <laughs> name it, it's, it's on there. And uh, we'd love to hear from you more. And of course, you can also come back and visit us again when we're back next week on another episode of Troubleshooting Agile. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Will. Well.